0: This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 6. This week, U.S. Navy Aerospace Operational Physiologist Commander Susan J. explains how flying high-performance aircraft and pulling Gs takes its toll on the human body. Roll it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. I guess they'll let me be your host a little longer. My name is Vincent Ayello, and I am just glad to be here on this journey with you. I hope you're enjoying what you've heard so far. And we have a long interview today with Commander Susan Jay, so we're going to just get through one announcement, a couple questions, and straight on to the interview. Our only short announcement is that we are now on Stitcher. Uh, I had said something about that on episode zero, and I had a comment on YouTube that the person couldn't find it and realized we had dropped the ball on that, but we picked it up, and uh, we're now on Stitcher. So if you haven't already found us, in which case, how would you be listening to this? But anyway, uh, if you're looking for another way besides iTunes or the website, now you can check out Stitcher. All right, on to the question and answer segment of today's show. My first question comes from Jakob from Denmark, who says, Hello, greetings from Denmark, loving the podcasts, saw the post with the 1000th trap on Carl Vinson, and was wondering what carrier you served on. Now, Jakob's question, it comes in multiple parts here, and so I'm going to answer each one of them as we go. So first off, Jakob, thanks for your question. Uh, I deployed twice each on the George Washington and Nimitz and once on John F. Kennedy. I also have landings on the carriers Carl Vinson, Constellation, Harry S. Truman, and Abraham Lincoln. Jakob goes on, is it normal to swap around to different boats? And by boats, he means aircraft carriers. And yes, Jakob, it is. For stateside airwings, it is quite normal to move from carrier to carrier because the deployment schedule changes and carriers sometimes need their nuclear reactors refueled. And it just doesn't always line up to go with the same carrier. So... But for the most part, it is normal to switch around. The exception to that is we do have a forward deployed air wing and carrier in Japan, and they generally stay together until the carrier cycles back every few years. All right, next question. Are carrier air wings equal equipment-wise on the different boats? What I mean is, does each carrier have the same number of EA-18s for SEED, and E-2s for EW, and so on and so forth, or are they specialized for different tasks? Jakob, each air wing is, for the most part, configured similarly. We talked about this in a previous episode, and in fact, I took some grief from a friend of mine who flies the EA-18 Growler for not mentioning that as one of the squadrons, so my apologies to him and all of you who fly the Growler. But for the most part, you have four F-18 squadrons, one Growler squadron, one E-2 squadron, a couple helicopter squadrons, and what am I missing? I believe that's it. And for the most part, they all do all of the missions. And finally, thanks for inspiring me even more with the interviews going to apply for Royal Danish Air Force Pilot School in the fall. Well, that's great news, Jakob, and good luck to you. I hope you have a rewarding career flying presumably the F-16 with the Danish Air Force, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, next, let's go to a phone call. This is John from California. With the retirement of the s 3 Viking, what happened to the ASW mission? Thanks for your service,
1: and thanks for the show. Keep up the great work.
0: All right. Well, I realize that question was a little difficult to hear, but John from California is asking, what happened to the anti-submarine warfare mission since the retirement of the S-3 Viking? So, John, thanks for your question. I would put that answer in a question back to you to make a point, which is, what happened to the Denver Broncos a couple years ago when Peyton Manning retired? And of course the answer in both settings is that the team went on without one of its star players. So that is what happened in the anti-submarine warfare world as well. You know, that mission is not just performed by aircraft. In fact, the best ASW platform is another submarine. And we also have surface ships that perform the mission. And for aircraft specifically, I think what you're getting at for your question is from the carrier, there is no fixed-wing asset that does that anymore. It is helicopters only, but we still have the P-3 and now the P-8 that is replacing it also on the air side of things. Great question. All right, next question is from Aki in Finland. Again, a multi-part question. We'll break it up here. At which point does the pilot arm the ejection seat? Are there differences if you fly from a boat or from a field? Yes, there are. Ashore, you immediately arm the seat right before takeoff, and then you de-arm it right after you land. And on the carrier, you do it a little earlier. You actually arm the ejection seat as soon as they take off the chains and chocks that hold you to the carrier firmly, and once you start moving. Because if you lose your brakes and go off the side, you need to be able to eject in a hurry. And in fact, on a previous video on one of my playlists on YouTube, I think there's an Uh, an example of that with the F-14 that goes off the side because they failed to put the jet blast deflector up behind an aircraft that was about to take off. So uh, float, you uh, do it right before they break you down, and then you can safe the seat again right after they chain you down after your flight. Next question Aki asks is, did you fly in an F-18 equipped with Mark 14 NACES or the sju 5 Did they have any noticeable differences if you have, quote, used both of them? So Aki, uh, thankfully I never, quote, used either one of them like our previous guest Bloach did. Uh, But I did sit in them uh, close to 4,000 hours worth of rear end time in those. And so uh, for everyone else, the Mark 14, also known as the SJU 17, and NACES just stands for Navy Aircrew Common Ejection Seat. So the SJU-5 was in the older F-18 Hornet. The SJU-17 was in the later model Hornet and all of the Super Hornets. Aki, the only difference is that on pre-flight, you look at a few different things on the seats because they are built differently. And when you are flying, should you, God forbid, need to pull the emergency oxygen green ring, it's in a slightly different location Uh, inboard or outboard of your leg, and you just need to know which one you're in. And frankly, if you're in a hurry and you look down and it's not where you expect it, you look in the other place and and there it is. So it's not that big a difference to go from seat to seat and F-18 pilots do it regularly. Next, he asks, how much in trouble are you if you forget the master arm in an arm position after a training sortie. And from a previous episode, you might recall that the master arm switch is a lot like the safety on a firearm. And it is what allows us to actually release ordnance or fire weapons or guns on the aircraft. So Aki, that question depends. And I always hate that answer, but it does. Because if you're just out doing anything, and you don't really have too much in the way of weapons that can come off your aircraft, then it's not that big a deal. A lot of times in the older F-18, you have to arm the master arm just to get the chaff and flare expendables out in training. But if you're dropping live weapons and or forward firing guns, and really, if you have a history of doing kind of bonehead things, and that's just one more indicator, then you might be in a little more trouble because that just shows that something's going on and you're not all there. And we have, without getting into too much of a tangent on this, you know, we have what's called human factors, councils and boards and various things where you look at, you know, anytime there's an an incident or a mishap, it's always easy to say, man, we should have seen this coming. This guy got a divorce and he moved and his mom died and all these human factors. Well, the reason for these councils and boards is to try to identify that ahead of time. So if we have a young pilot who maybe is boltering a lot and leaving the master arm switch on, yeah, that might come up in a meeting, and we might take a look at what's going on in this young person's life so we can hopefully avert a mishap before it happens. All right, let's see here. You also asked, uh, when using the rudder pedal adjustment lever in the pedal position, uh, uh, is the pedal position adjusted with an actuator motor, or is it a spring-based system where you use your feet to move the pedals to a correct position? Uh, Aki, it's the latter. It's just a very simple cable and pulley system. It's actually the exact same on the Boeing 717 that I fly. And it's just simple that way. There's no need for electric motors to move the thing back and forth. Did you ever fly with Finnish exchange pilots? If you did, what did you think about them? No, unfortunately, I did not, Aki. So I'm sorry for that. I wish I had, but I'm sure they're top notch. All right. That is going to do it for questions. I have plenty more. If you phoned in or called in or emailed, I should say, a question, uh, please be patient. I've got a long interview today, and frankly, next week with Top Gun, it'll be the same. But I want to get to those interviews and keep the show right at an hour. So let's get straight to it. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we are talking aviation physiology, pulling G's, air sickness, hypoxia, etc. And here to help us do that is US Navy Commander and Aerospace Operational Physiologist Susan J. Hey, how are you doing? How are you? Good Great. afternoon,
1: Jello. How are things? Thank, Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thanks for coming on the show. I think this will be a lot of fun and sure. we're looking forward to hearing about what happens to the human body when we fly high-performance aircraft. You got it. But sure. before we do, the little mm-hmm. standard on the show here is we need to get to know you. So could you give us a little background, uh, where you're from, where you went to school, and what your professional career has been like?
1: Sure. I am a native of Iowa, northeast part of the state, undergraduate degrees from the University of Iowa, so go Hawkeyes. And I was a college professor before I joined the Navy, so I have a, a rather unusual career, so anatomy and physiology, and I was interested in flight and sciences and, like I said, taught a lot of anatomy and physiology. And uh, I knew the Air- the Navy had this aerospace physiology program, so I went and joined. And been in about 21 years, 17 of which have been in naval aviation total.
0: Okay, so you're not necessarily a medical doctor, but you have specialty in the human body and the effects of... Physics essentially, on the body. Is that basically it?
1: Exactly. Okay. So what I am, I am a uh, Medical Service Corps officer. So in the Navy Medical Department, if you are not a physician and you're not a nurse and you're not a dentist, but you still have something to do in the allied health fields and in, in the medical field, you are in the Medical Service Corps. So it has 31 subspecialties, all different types, anywhere from health care administrator, people who run hospitals to... Physician's assistants to physical therapists, research physiologists, and then aerospace operational physiologists like myself. So um, even though I'm in the medical department, I don't work in the hospital. I don't work in a clinic, but I'm on the flight line working with fighter pilots and maintainers and, and so And you forth. get to fly, right? I get to fly. Cool. Yes, it's a requirement for our job. Okay. So we go through, physiologists, we go through the exact same training that other air crew, other fighter pilots go through. We go through ground school. um all the the survival training, which my community, we actually teach that. Okay. We do that type of training. We have introductory flights and so forth. And then we break off and do our subspecialty in terms of specific aeromedical human performance.
0: Okay. So you're an expert on the subject and you go out there and actually feel the effects of it yourself and and uh, and get to check that out. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, in episode one, Sunshine, whom I believe you know. Yes. Uh, yeah. He touched... Briefly on the concept of G's. Now, you and I, Mm -hmm. and hopefully most of our listeners, are sitting here (laughs) at one G. Yes. Uh, Tell us what a G is, if you will.
1: It is little g. It's an abbreviation for gravitational force. So it's a perception of weight due to accelerative forces. So here, just sitting here, you're at one G. And uh, in an aircraft, if you're flying along straight and level, your lift equals your weight. When you enter a steep turn or a banked turn, um, like 60 degrees angle of bank or so forth, your weight doubles. Your lift is twice your weight. So you feel like you're pressed into the seat and your weight is now twice what it was before.
0: Okay, so it's the gravitational pull that essentially sticks us to the earth, right? Exactly. Because of the massive size of this thing. And so our bodies have adapted to living in this 1G environment. But mm-hmm. through technology, we have been able to go out and do, in, in the yeah. example you just described, 2Gs. So, for example, if I fly, if I weigh 200 pounds mm-hmm. and I turn 60 degrees angle of bank and I pull 2Gs, I you literally weigh, weigh 400 pounds. If I was weigh, sitting on a scale, it would say 400. Mm-hmm. Okay, exactly. that's pretty impressive. Yep. Now... I think uh, maybe an analogy for the listener who hasn't flown or pulled Gs might be what? A roller coaster or, or a car driving yes. up and down hills. So, at the bottom of a hill or at the bottom of a roller coaster, when you start to go up, or let's say on a loop, you're mm-hmm. experiencing that positive G. And at the top of the hill, when you're light in the seat, you're, le- right. you're experiencing less than one G. Is exactly. That
1: you're unloaded. Okay. So, you go inverted and you're unloaded. Okay. So in, an airplane, right. so, in an airplane, G.
0: if we fly upside down, let's say like the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds, mm-hmm. but you're still straight and left it's like uh like if you have gravity yes. boots in your doorway or something you're, exactly. you're upside down you're mm-hmm. one g but yep. the other direction okay yeah now let's talk about the negative g's first because those are probably fairly easy to mm-hmm. get out of the way because we don't do a lot of don't those in those aviation uh, but what's the significance of pulling negative g's what happens in your body when let's say you're flying along mm-hmm. and you push forward on the stick and you experience you know negative two or three g's let's say
1: is extremely uncomfortable because what happens, uh, the biggest concern pulling G's um, is blood. Draining from the head, or blood moving in and around out of the head, and so forth. Well, for negative Gs, you're inverted, and the blood begins to pool in the head itself, and it's extremely uncomfortable because let's face it, you got a really bony skull. It's not a whole lot of space for the blood to brain or the the blood to pool into. Um, and it's extremely uncomfortable, and humans don't tolerate it very well.
0: I see. Okay, so. The air show performers, they can build a tolerance to that, just like yes. you can positive Gs. Mm-hmm. But for someone who doesn't do it very often, it can have effects, what, on your eyes as well, right? You can right. burst and, and blood burst vessels. Blood and, vessels
1: and, and they'll call it sort of red eye. It looks okay. as though you, you've you actually broken some of the small blood vessels. and you look, you, Your eyes are bloodshot, essentially. Okay.
0: Now, conveniently, our aircraft are not designed, with the exception of some of those air show performers, mm-hmm. to pull or push, maybe a better example, mm-hmm. negative Gs. Uh, so the positive Gs. Yes, now, Let's let's talk very briefly about axes, if you will, and I'll try to paint a picture for the listener. Okay. If I stand up and I put my right arm out to the side and my left arm directly in front of me, my spine is essentially the Z-axis. My Correct. right arm pointing out to my side is, let's say, the Y-axis. Mm-hmm. And my arm pointing in front of me, my left arm, is the X-axis. Correct. Now, we don't do, like in a car... You drive mostly what we would call yaw in an airplane, mm-hmm. left and right. And so you have a little bit of the y-axis there when you take a uh, turn very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you screech to a halt, you feel a little bit of G in the x-axis. Right,
1: sort of a decelerative. Right.
0: But in aviation, when we pull, that's why we use the term Gs, we're pulling back on the stick. Mm-hmm. And most of the G is in the uh, z-axis Correct. down our spine. Now, that is difficult for the body to take, right? Because like mm-hmm. you just said, most of our body is a fluid, blood, and most of blood is water. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. So water is affected by G-forces. So what happens in our body when we start pulling positive Gs? If
1: you do not actively work to prevent it, the blood will begin to drain from the head. Um, into the chest or the lower extremities, and about one to three Gs, you'll begin to get sort of blood draining or pooling, about three to four Gs, and these are positive Gs, like you said, you'll begin to get visual changes, your vision will begin to gray out, around four to five Gs, you'll get what's known as blackout, and that's visual blackout, that's not you actually passing out and going unconscious. And around five to six Gs, you actually will have folks that will will pass out. And I, I would say, again, I need to emphasize this is you just passively sitting there as the Gs are coming on. You're not actively working to prevent the the, the pooling or the draining.
0: Right. And we can talk about some mm-hmm. of those uh, measures to prevent that from happening. Okay. So, again, there's, there's blood that's in your head and in your eyes. And mm-hmm. when G-forces happen... Because of the physics of it, they the the fluid leaves that cavity, and then right. of course, if your eyes are devoid of blood in your brain, then your body doesn't function quite as well.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, and I'll tell you a quick story about the uh, the vision side of it. I noticed that when I Used to fly fighters. Uh, We don't pull too many Gs now in our airliners. Um, Hope not. (laughs) uh, I would get... So I think there's something about... And and without going into too much detail, maybe you can tell us, but there's something about the anatomy of the eye because it seems like the grayness comes in from the side first Mm -hmm. on the periphery. Is that correct? Correct. All right. So what happened was... In my case, I guess one of my eyes, I think it was my right eye, would always, it would, it would come in from the sides on both
1: mm. if I
0: was not able to keep up on the G-forces and, you know, keep right, my vision. Right, you wouldn't
1: stay ahead and, of them. And the,
0: the, the, they would come in at the same time. And my right eye would actually gray over first. But if I was really on my game, I could l- ease up on the G just enough where I had a little, like looking through a soda straw in my left eye. I was going to say <laughs> sort of a
1: pinhole? And uh-huh. I, used
0: to, I used to call it my targeting eyeball because <laughs> instead of having my normal peripheral vision, I'd have to scan around with this little looking through oh. a Okay. To figure out what's going on and and where the other aircraft is that I might be dogfighting, yeah. um, and thankfully I never pulled all the way past that and got to a point where I lost my complete vision. Just lost vision, vision completely. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and now is that what we call or, uh, a lock or what is the a? Is that almost loss of consciousness?
1: A lock is considered an almost loss of consciousness. Not quite, but you're getting close. Okay. So even though your your vision is graying out or it's beginning to tunnel, usually an a lock is. Um, it's hard to sort of describe. You actually need to see the, the tapes from someone. We have folks go through training in a centrifuge, and you can actually see when someone is A locked. They've not completely passed out, but they are definitely cognitively not there. They're not all there. They're okay. not all there. So I would say that you probably have not A locked because you still, I mean, you're obviously scanning and consciously looking around, even though your vision has, has grayed out or is tunneled.
0: Okay. Uh, and on that note, we're going to have a channel on our YouTube. Uh, oh. I, uh, we're going to have a playlist, excuse me, on our YouTube channel with a couple of videos that you can find right there on okay, YouTube. Okay, good. On, and I yep. might even upload my own from the centrifuge that I did I in I have got mine as well. Yes. So we'll see. Yep. We okay. actually,
1: we, as physiologists, we go through the the same training again that you do yeah, sure. the centrifuge, yeah. And um, most of us will go through the same, same runs. There's usually five runs of various... G's in terms of magnitude and duration and head position and so forth. And then usually by the time that you get to the fifth run, you're exhausted anyway. But we purposely will lock just so that we you know, oh, after you guys you've done will lose we, we, consciousness. Will actually, we will actually purposely well, lock actually probably if good we for your credibility like so for us. you can
0: teach it better to the rest of us that so way so now it's okay. like
1: okay so that's that's what happens when, when someone actually G locks okay so, so we're pulling
0: G's uh, we might start to feel the effects obviously we feel the effects of the, the gravity because we just feel physically mm-hmm. heavier so our necks all of our muscles that are used to in my previous example holding up a 200 pound frame are suddenly right. dealing with a 400, 600 1200 pound mm-hmm. frame
1: and think of it you're, and the helmet on too it, Exactly. Your head itself, just as it is, weighs an average between 10 to 11 pounds, give or take. Okay. Now, you add your helmet and your visor, your oxygen mask, night vision goggles, all of that begins to get loaded on easily. Well, now that becomes... You know, 40 pounds, 60 pounds, sure. and so forth. It's, I mean, it's if you heavy. pull five
0: Gs, that's 100 pounds it's on your neck. Heavy. So I'm yes. guessing fighter pilots tend to have a lot of neck problems, troubles. Yes,
1: and back. And that's one of the, um, the preventive measures that, as physiologists and with flight surgeons that we work with hard to um, have good physical fitness programs, stretching, flexibility, weightlifting, so that it's not just the muscles that will help you with your G strain to help you prevent. G-locking and so forth, but it's also to build up the the neck muscles and so forth so that you can keep your head up and you can keep scanning and Mm -hmm. looking.
0: And just tolerate the Gs better. Yes. Now, I don't know if this is just anecdotal, so you can tell me now in front of everyone. It seemed to me like the tall, skinny runners Mm. were not very good at tolerating G-forces and this short squat muscle lifting, you know, maybe... Don't have quite as healthy of a diet. Um, But it (laughs) doesn't seem fair, does it? (laughs) Because there's less of a distance, right, between the brain and everything else. And if your blood pressure. I don't know. Think through this. Maybe you can help me. Mm -hmm. If if you have higher blood pressure, it's actually more resistant to blood leaving your brain, I mean, arguably, right? right?
1: Think of um, the distance between your heart and your eyeballs as a hydrostatic column, like a column of water. And essentially, that's like you said, that's what blood is. So the taller that column is the harder you have to work to maintain that column at a higher level so the blood stays in your head. The shorter the, the shorter and squatter you are, right. or the shorter that, that hydrostatic column, the easier it is, you know, to, to be able to maintain sufficient positive pressure, for lack of a better way of describing it. Sure. So that the blood doesn't drain out of the head. Okay. So, so I- yes, really in the centrifuge, because, again, we do a lot of that training um, – We can tell when it's sort of body type, the the real tall, skinny beanpole. It's like, you're going to (laughs) lock. It's like are the really short squatty ones? It's right. like no, you're you're gonna you're gonna knock this out of the park, champ. You're not gonna have any difficulty no at all. Well, yeah, well,
0: let's talk about that yeah. in a little bit. But let's continue through our scenario of a person pulling G's, and mm-hmm. in my case, talked about my targeting eyeball as I start to lose vision. At some point, if you are unable to stay in front of it or keep mm-hmm. up with it, as they say, uh, the blood has vacated the important parts of your body, and then you get to that A lock that we talked about, mm-hmm. and then G lock itself. So what happens there? I mean, are you literally asleep or are you just unconscious or a little of both?
1: Uh, You have literally passed out.
0: So your body is just incapable of doing anything meaningful, not just for those, what, 12 seconds roughly, but for another 18 or 20 seconds after you come back, right?
1: Correct. So when we say that someone is G-locked, where they have a a, um, G loss of consciousness, there's actually two parts to it. There's a period of absolute incapacitation, which averages around 12 seconds, and it can range anywhere from nine to, to 22, give or take. Okay, but you are completely out. You've passed out, and you can see this on the tapes in the centrifuge. Um, they, I mean, you've let go of the stick, the throttle. You're just sitting there. People will tell you that, um, you know, they dream, they have little dreamlets, all kinds of things. And then they will begin to come to, as the blood begins to get back up in the head, because your heart's pumping and your muscles are contracting and it's working hard to get your brain rebooted, there's a period of what's known as relative incapacitation. And that, too, averages about 12 seconds, but it can range anywhere from 9 to 40 seconds. And that is a period of time when you're awake and your conscience But you definitely are cognitively not there. It's sort of like the lights are on, but nobody's home kind of thing. And you're sort of out of it. So an entire period of G-lock, 24 seconds, but it can be almost a minute.
0: Which is scary in a high-performance aircraft that could very well start pointing towards the ground. Exactly, you You can lose an
1: awful lot of altitude in a very short period of time. Yes, Unfortunately,
0: that has claimed many pilots over the years. Yes, I think, hasn't the Air Force F-16 started incorporating some sort of recovery thing if it hasn't received a pilot input in a certain amount of time and it's got a certain profile?
1: It is called uh, an auto GCAS. So it's an automatic ground collision avoidance system. So an auto GCAS, and what it is, it processes information in terms of, of altitude and elevation,
0: Probably previous G's too, so it knows exactly. if the guy just pulled seven G's or something.
1: And it also has a profile of the the tra- the trajectory of the aircraft of itself, and it see if it sees that the aircraft's trajectory is going to essentially run into the the terrain, it will automatically roll upright and pull a five G, so that the aircraft itself will. At least until you terrain clearance is assured, wow. so it will it will take over and fly the aircraft for you.
0: And I don't remember how many, but I know that has saved a couple. It pilots. has.
1: I'd, I've seen reports anywhere from four to seven confirmed wow. saves. So, um, and the Air Force has it in not all, but some of their F-16. Now, the Navy and the Marine Corps don't have it installed in any of their aircraft yet. But I just saw something the other day where it's being installed in the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter. And it's coming online about five years before it was scheduled. Oh, good. Which I think is is very good. That's unusual for for the military. It's usually It should be standard. Exactly. (laughs) It should be standard issue. All
0: right. Well, Cyclone, let's go back to the guy who's passed out Mm -hmm. and starts coming around. The body does some sort of reboot, right? What's this funky chicken Uh, thing? The funky chicken. Oh
1: yes. So that is that literally is uh, your brain rebooting. So large muscles when they contract voluntary muscles will help push or force blood back up into the head. And that's exactly what the brain is trying to do. It's trying, it's like, okay, I need to get more blood up into my head, up to my eyeballs. And that's essentially what the funky chicken is. It's it's just, um... It looks like a seizure, but it's not. So it should only last for a couple of seconds. If it lasts more than 5 to 10, that's a seizure and that's a problem. But it, it re- from a medical perspective, it really does look like someone is having a seizure.
0: So, <laughs> and again, if people want to look at the videos on the playlist I'm going to include in this, uh, they'll see people go through go that. through it's, the it's funky kinda, chicken. It's kind of yes. embarrassing, but it's you know, it it's is, just, but you it's know what? And, and
1: that's perfectly normal. Right. That's, I mean, your body, that's the best way for your body to get the blood back up into your head. The only hitch is um, you realize where the ejection seat handle is, right between your legs, and if your arms are flailing, which for some folks they can, it can be very easy to catch the handle. Yikes. And now you have have issues or a potential problem that you you pull or partially pull the ejection wow. seat handle. Has that ever happened? Do we know? No, but we know that some people have gotten themselves caught wow. partially on the handle.
0: That's scary. So, okay. um, All right. So is there any lasting effect on the body as far as pulling? So let me just Mm. give you a quick story. When I went to the centrifuge in 2013, Mm -hmm. I ended up, I think it's what, the capillaries on my skin, I I pulled nine Gs for I think 15 seconds Mm -hmm. in order to fly the F-16. And that night I was purple. I mean, it's embarrassing, but I actually took pictures of myself because you had
1: speed measles. Is I what had it's called massive purple
0: <laughs> bruising, and I don't normally get that in the airplane. So I don't know if the centrifuge is different. But aside from some busted capillaries that take a week to heal and right. it itches a little bit, yeah, there, it's called petechia.
1: It, it's it's speed measles. Speed, okay, speed or, measles. Okay. Yeah.
0: Is, is there any? You know, once once you're done pulling G's, is there any for a person who spent a career flying fighters? Is there any lasting effects of? Uh, of pulling G's? No, other than what you alluded
1: to earlier with you know your neck and back pain. Okay. So yes, there is a potential for that for long term.
0: Okay. But the blood um, leaves the eyes the blood, and the brain, blood comes back in the eyes and brain and everything's still okay. No, uh, not that, that, that we know
1: of. Yeah. Okay.
0: Outstanding. Now we have a few methods and some equipment to mm-hmm help us tolerate G-forces. One of those we talked about in episode three with Vern. I think you oh. know him too,
1: don't you? Yes, I do. Okay, great. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: And that's the G-suit. And he told okay. us then that when you put this around your legs and your torso, that it hooks to the aircraft mm-hmm. and it fills up with the bleed air from the aircraft and it squeezes mm-hmm. for the same reason we squeeze the bottom of the toothpaste tube, is to get the right. toothpaste up in the top where it matters, and that that can buy us about one or one and a half G of tolerance. Correct. Yep. So that doesn't sound like enough. What else do we have to... to withstand G-forces? Probably
1: the best thing in your arsenal is what's known as the anti-G straining maneuver. So an AGSM. There's two parts to it. There's a muscle strain and then a breathing cycle that goes with it. We tell folks to start in the lower legs and gradually work up to your glute region or into the upper body. So I always tell folks, start by curling your toes and try to contract the calf muscles or the soleus muscle, which is a large muscle in the the back part of your lower leg. It's right underneath, you know, your gastroc. So the the big beefy muscles in the lower part of the leg. Okay. So from there, work your way up into the thighs, hamstrings, quadriceps, and then the biggest bang for your buck are the glutes. So your butt muscles. Okay. And some folks have got bigger butts than others, so oh, you have an advantage. That's right. So your glutes are large muscles around the hips and very powerful muscles. And if you can contract those, that will that will really help to. Um, Increase or improve your strain.
0: So this makes so. sense. You start at the bottom and work up mm-hmm. because if you start in the middle, you could force blood down theoretically. Exactly. So you want to start down there and work up.
1: And like I said, you, want to, you only want to work as hard as you have to.
0: So if you
1: can get away with, like if you have large thigh muscles or very a, a very efficient strain, where. You just your lower legs and your thighs, and that's sufficient to help keep the blood right. in your head. Okay. Why work any harder than you have to? Because it, it doing a good anti-G straining maneuver can get exhausting.
0: So for people who aren't aware, uh, they'll have to pardon the analogy, but it's a little bit like trying to take care of business. I mean, you're oh, really yeah. bearing down. <laughs> uh, now that case you're yeah. trying to get something to go a different direction. Exactly. But in this case, we're trying to keep the blood up on our head now. So I purposely did not warn you cyclone. No. Are you willing to demonstrate sure. an AGSM for us? Are um, you Let okay. me do this. Right. Okay.
1: So the best thing is probably, like i said, the AGSM, you start the, the lower legs and then you work your way up. Uh-huh. So, and one of the best Training techniques or visualizations, for lack of a better way of describing it. Visualize you have a wallet or a walnut. Walnut, okay. Take the walnut. Put it between your butt cheeks. Okay. Now, using your butt cheeks and nothing but your butt cheeks, crack the nut.
0: So you're trying to bear and down you, on you you that bear thing. bear down and,
1: and crack the nut using your butt cheeks. You should rise out of the seat just a little bit, but that that is... So if, if you hear somebody... Um depending on the whatever you load up in terms of the the tapes from the centrifuge, if you hear somebody screaming crack the nut that's
0: what they're that's talking what about. they're talking okay. about
1: that's what they're referring
0: to okay so. and then the actual part of the hick maneuver as mm-hmm. we call it the anti g strain maneuver is the the reason it's the hick is that the the that word correct me if I'm wrong mm-hmm. forces your glottal to close at a certain correct. spot and so what you can do is you can try to keep the blood that's already in your head up in your head and you exactly. need to do this in f- before you start pulling the G's, right? Correct. Oh, yes. And yep. and so then if you take, if you go, hit, <sighs> hit, right, if you do a big, deep breath, you do end, you're going to dump yeah, everything out of Exactly. Here, right? So it's a real yeah. quick exchange of air. Mm-hmm. You're not really worried about filling your lungs with good oxygen because hopefully this only lasts a little while.
1: Correct. Just, you know, a few seconds. Right.
0: But no. it's long enough that you keep the blood in your brain and, you know, those that quick exchange of air uh, will put some oxygen in your lungs. So, exactly. Uh, if you're willing, give us a quick sound demonstration <laughs> of a sure. good NIG strain maneuver. So
1: the idea is, again, you start the the lower legs and the breath cycle is is coordinated. So the breath exchange should be very short and quick, about two, three seconds. So it goes, hick.
0: And you just keep you just doing keep that doing until that. either the mm-hmm. G releases or, um, I don't know, when do, you, when do you quit? Do you just keep uh, going? You, do, you just keep going. Okay. Yeah.
1: And it, you get more sophisticated, better at it, and you can can judge when you can kind of let off, when you need to bear down even more, and so forth. But you should continue to do the anti G's training maneuver, the HIC maneuver, the entire time that you're pulling G's. Now. So
0: is a person always going to have the same G tolerance? Like some people, like you Mm. said, the short and stocky folks may not need to do that until, let's say, six or seven Gs, Mm -hmm. but someone else may have to start it at four. But the person who starts it at four on one day, is it always going to have the same G tolerance?
1: Uh, Your G tolerance can vary um, drastically from day to day, even within yourself, Mm. and it can vary from person to person. So that's part of the reason why um, you always do a G warm-up maneuver. Uh, before flight.
0: So that's where we just go out, we just pull some Gs just to right. see how we are that day, right? Mm-hmm. And okay. that's
1: part of it. So it's usually, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's usually a 4-degree, or excuse me, a 4G turn.
0: For about 90 degrees, that's right. And then right. about
1: 6 You just touch Gs. 6 for a moment, and then you ease and off, then to ease four, off. Right? And then that, ease off. And that, just as you had said, is a chance to s- assess your G tolerance for that day, because it can vary dramatically.
0: Even on the... F- first flight versus the second Correct. flight of the day. So mm-hmm. if you had a big boom at night the night before oh, yeah. and you're dehydrated and you're tired and you didn't eat breakfast, your G tolerance may be lower. Exactly. And you might know that as soon as you start pulling that four mm-hmm. and you say, oh, wow, okay, Ooh. I need to take it easy today or make sure I'm getting in front of it more mm-hmm. of my anti-G strain maneuver. Wow. Or if you've been flying a lot and you've been taking care of yourself with lifting weights and it's, you know, your third flight in two days and you're, you know, you really built the tolerance, you may not have to start an anti-G. G-strain maneuvered until, right. again, five or six Or maybe six not
1: work not nearly as hard. Right,
0: mm So, okay. mm-hmm. yep. I know for me that was definitely the case. There were some days where it came easy and other days where it mm-hmm. didn't and I think for me the biggest thing was simply dehydration. I mean, it's I really would say, important to stay right. hydrated.
1: Exactly. And we always tell people um, manage your fatigue but probably the quickest way to lower your G-tolerance is to be dehydrated, essentially. I mean, not only is it just blood pressure in terms of blood volume and so forth but it's your body's cooling mechanism and all kinds of things. Sure. So, yes. so
0: just like putting all the proper fluids in your automobile, you need to do the mm-hmm. same thing for your body. Exactly. All right. Well, what else on G force? I have a couple other physiology topics I'd like to ask you about, but uh, have we touched everything on the Gs? I think so. Yes. Okay. Well, if you think of anything, we can, we can always come back to yeah. it. All right. So let's mm-hmm. talk about one that maybe some listeners are familiar with and that's mm-hmm. air sickness. Okay. Now when I flew my very first flight in training, I got sick. Mm-hmm. And on my second one, I felt sick, but I didn't actually puke. And by a week later, I was fine. Okay. So what is air sickness and why does it seem to go away? Or maybe it doesn't for some people. I don't know. Air sickness is a, a type of motion sickness. So
1: um, it's typically a mismatch between sensory systems, primarily your visual system and your vestibular system. So your vestibular system is your inner ear. It's your sense of balance. And typically those two systems, vision and vestibular, work together. But every now and then you'll get something that's a a mismatch. And your brain has a hard time with that conflicting information. It doesn't quite know what to believe. And it's like, I'm just going to get sick and I'm going to puke kind of thing.
0: Okay, so So. we are ground-based creatures, right? So whether it's Darwin or God, you decide. (laughs) We weren't really intended for flight. So we go flying Mm -hmm. and suddenly our vestibular system, as you call it, the inner ear, which is built beautifully for three dimensions
1: on the ground. On the ground, mm-hmm.
0: Now you start, you know, turning, let's say, and mm-hmm. your eyes and your ears may not agree. And your body says, hey, this isn't right. I wonder if I ate something bad. Exactly. And so yeah. I better get rid of that. Get rid of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a lot of people will say that that's
1: part of the, um, Air sickness or motion sickness, that's the reason, you know, it, it, it was built to prevent poisoning. It's like there's something that's made you ill... Vomit, get rid, get of, rid it, of it, sure, and that takes care so of it. So our ancestors were
0: trying out new berries and different things, mm-hmm. and one of them makes your inner ear mess up, and your inner ear tells your stomach uh, eject uh, that eject. last, <laughs> eject <laughs> that. Eject <the> last <laughs> thing you in, uh, in, ingested. So, yeah. all right, well that makes sense. So, does it seem to go away for most people?
1: It does. um Probably, big biggest thing is. um being able to recage your visual system. So, a lot of times, again, it's a mismatch between your inner ear and vision. So, if you can um, look outside, get a good horizon, helps to get your eyeballs, your visual system recaged, that tends to anchor essentially the two systems together and then they work just fine. Is it, this is especially true for students. So for them, um, air conditioning—something that helps cool them off—make okay. sure they're on oxygen. You know, if you're above ten thousand feet, you're going to be on oxygen anyway. But sometimes they're below that because of where they're working, um, taking some good deep breaths of of oxygen helps to kind of clear their head and so forth. Probably the most important thing, other than like I said, getting a good visual. Q or Horizon, um, stay busy or active in the flight. It's really hard to puke when you're flying the plane. So I, too, on the first couple of flights, we'd get airsick. So my instructor pilot would have me fly. And sure enough, I'm busy actually trying to pilot the aircraft, and it really is hard to puke when you're flying the plane. Well, not so. just
0: not just actually doing it, but isn't there something about the tactile feel mm-hmm. where your body can also help communicate? Exactly.
1: Yep. Okay. Um, and it, really the biggest thing is just habituation. So you said, you know, the first flight... You got sick, second one, yeah, didn't feel so well but didn't puke or anything like this and by the third flight it's like, okay. And for the most part that's that's it. It's just continual habituation because students will fly every single day, sometimes several times during, you know, twice during the day. The instructor pilots can fly up to three times. Mm-hmm. So it's just the, the
0: habituation of it. You know, I have to uh, finish the story. I thought I was King Kong by the end of my primary training <laughs> in T-34s. Yeah. My very last flight, I kid you not, I was in the back and we have the little oh. instrument shield you put mm-hmm. on so even if it's beautiful day, you makes it look like you're flying in clouds. Right. And I thought we were done and I don't know what I was thinking but I had this small can, you've seen them, of pineapple juice. Oh, and oh I thought we were done. So I, I popped the bag back and I'm going to drink this little highly acidic drink. <laughs> and the instructor decides, hey, we're going to do some aerobatics. Guess what? <laughs> so back came at the end of all that training. Back came my pineapple juice, not looking much different, but no, in, the in a bag did, instead the of a did can. When it
1: came down. Yeah.
0: And, uh, but I'll tell you, yeah. still to this day, or at least when I retired, if I got in the back seat with someone, so kudos mm. to all the naval flight officers out there, um, If I got in the backseat and wasn't flying and was doing something other than flying, I I would still get queasy. In fact, I could almost make myself a little queasy if it was particularly bumpy that day if we were flying low and turbulent and fast. Um, So for me, it never fully went away, but it was always, like you said, with habituation, I just use the term building a tolerance, but same thing. Um, It's always kind of right there, but I think your body just learns after a while, okay, this doesn't mean you ate something bad. This is just, okay. Mm -hmm. Excellent.
1: So, and, um, naval aviation, the training commands have an air sickness program. It's rare for someone to have intractable air sickness. I mean, usually they have to, some folks, it may take them longer to build up their tolerance or to habituate, but, um, we do have an air sickness program and when the, the, um, we actually spin people, not necessarily in a fun- centrifuge, but it's known as a Baroni chair. So, huh. um, you spin And then you have people move their head in various ways and so forth. And that forces you to get used to having your vestibular system provide input that doesn't necessarily match your visual system. And that's essentially what you're doing as a fighter pilot. You know, you're moving, you're constantly looking around and moving your head. And that that will get you disoriented until you get used to it.
0: I imagine. All right, let's talk about a big killer for military pilots mm. in general, including fighter pilots, and that is hypoxia. Okay. Um, yep. you know, we need oxygen to live. I think everyone is aware of that, but as aviators and not just fighter pilots, but really all, even civilian aviators have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different ways our body can have problems w- transferring oxygen uh, where it needs to be. And so let's talk briefly about that and why is it such a big deal?
1: So hypoxia just in general is a lack of oxygen to the tissues. And that could be in any number of ways. Most hypoxia that we think of in terms of aviation is hypoxic hypoxia. So it's a lack of pressure, O2 pressure, and just not enough oxygen. There's not enough oxygen pressure to push the oxygen into your lungs and get it into your bloodstream.
0: Okay, so for people who are climbing, a tall mountain, uh, let's say mm-hmm. Everest, they have to adapt to this at some point. Exactly. Um, or use oxygen as they summit. Or supplementary oxygen. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the higher you go, the thinner the air is, so there's just less pressure. Your body, again, wasn't really designed to be up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in preparing for this interview, I actually did some research. That the first time they started looking into this was in the 1800s because oh, yeah. they were riding on balloons oh, and balloons. Going up. So yep. they, they figured out that this was already a problem back then.
1: One of the so, very first incidents of somebody getting hypoxic was the very first balloon flight. Wow, that's amazing.
0: So it's a problem for us because if we don't have oxygen, just like the hydration discussion Mm -hmm. we had a moment ago, obviously the body's not going to function properly. Correct, yep. So we can pass out from G's, but we can also pass out from a lack of oxygen, oxygen. not just because it couldn't get up there because of the G-forces, but it didn't get up there because of the pressure. And there's a couple Mm -hmm. others, right? So if uh, smokers have a slightly less uh, effective system to transport oxygen.
1: They do. That's sometimes known as anemic hypoxia. So um, that's essentially carbon monoxide or other things are competing with space on red blood cells where oxygen would normally attack. And in this case, carbon monoxide latches onto the exact same spot and it stays attached much longer. So there's no place for the oxygen to attach. So it's more of a transportation problem. Hmm. There's more than enough oxygen, there's more than enough pressure to get the oxygen into the lungs, into, into the bloodstream, but there's no place for the oxygen to latch onto the red blood cell. So it doesn't get carried out to
0: the tissues. That's, that's interesting. And, and then you can have a histotoxic type mm-hmm. of hypoxia where there's something else at play, whether it's alcohol, narcotics, some right. other effect on the body that's uh, impacting or degrading its ability to do its job, essentially.
1: We often uh, consider that poisoning. Okay. So, this is more at the cellular or metabolic level. So, something has gummed up the works. The oxygen was able to get into the, to the lungs and into the bloodstream, had no difficulty attaching onto the red blood cell, but when it gets presented to the tissue, the tissue can't use it. Something's gummed up the works. Gotcha. So, um, cyanide, which sounds odd in aviation, but electrical fires. Ah. Think of wires. Cyanide
0: is a byproduct of an electrical it is fire, correct? Of burning, wow. okay.
1: burning plastics. Um, remember from the
0: first Gulf War? Yeah, oil wells, ninety-one, right? Smoke, so they, they lit a bunch of, of wells, but a lot mm-hmm. of cyanide coming off of that. That
1: oh. and just the um, hydrocarbons, the Petrochemical, um, uh, petrochemicals, and, and yeah. you know okay. the, sure the byproducts from that as okay. well.
0: Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So. I think people are familiar with why we don't drink and drive. Uh, Both the FAA and the Department of Defense have rules on drinking and flying. And it sounds like it's just bad all around because not only does it impair judgment and performance, but it lowers your tolerance for G-forces. It lowers your ability to transport oxygen in the Mm -hmm. body, making you more susceptible to hypoxia. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's, uh, that's obviously why we don't want uh, right. pilots to consume alcohol within about 12 hours generally of flying.
1: It also can um, have an effect on the the fluid that's in the inner ear that helps sense turns and banks and so forth. It has a tendency to, for lack of a better way of describing it, thin out that fluid. You're used to having that fluid being a certain viscousness, and alcohol will have a tendency to affect that. So now... What would not be a big head, it would be a big deal moving your head around with that still in your alcohol, still in your system. Uh, can really distort the input from the inner ear.
0: And that's actually a great segue into another topic, which is spatial disorientation or spatial D. So Mm -hmm. it also impacts that. Now, so spatial disorientation is another killer, frankly, of Mm -hmm. aviators. Uh, What is it and and why is it so dangerous?
1: This too is a, a profound mismatch. Again, usually between your vision and your vestibular system. So I usually think of spatial disorientation That's what you don't want. What you want is spatial orientation or situational awareness. So, Mm -hmm. SA. So, SA, if you have good SA, that is your perception of the information. So, where you are in your aircraft relative to the terrain and everything around you. And if you have good situational awareness, you can forecast what's going to come next. Now, keep in mind that's your perception. Which is your interpretation of the information. So, your interpretation is based on lots of things how much experience you have, or lack of experience, how tired you are, what you expect to see, all of that can influence your perception. And fatigue is also a, a large underlying component sure. of that you don't process information as quickly when you're fatigued, and that too can can lead to getting disoriented. So, so you
0: can have a couple different types of spatial D, right? So mm-hmm. you can have a sensory illusion where you, you, what you're seeing is not reality. Correct. Or you can also have vertigo. So you are feeling like you're turning, but you're not, mm-hmm. or maybe you feel like you're not when you are turning.
1: Exactly. And a lot of that, exactly. again,
0: is just the mismatch between the different systems in our anatomy. Is that correct? correct. Okay. Yep.
1: So you have three major sources of input. Um, vision, which kicks in about 80%, and it's very reliable. It's hard to to fool your eyeballs. So you're very visually dominant. Your vestibular system contributes about 15%. And then proprioceptive, which is just a fancy word for seat of the pants, kicks in about 5%.
0: Okay, so scuba divers out there Mm -hmm. are familiar with you should never dive about 24 hours before you fly. Correct. And that is mainly because of trapped gas issues and decompression sickness issues. Is that correct? I mean, what, what happens when we are underwater? What's the same effect when you're at altitude and go to higher altitudes on the gases in your body?
1: Got it. So underwater, you're under a greater pressure. And as you ascend to the surface, uh, you begin to um, off-gas or release some, some nitrogen. And if you do this slowly, it's no big deal. You're able to um, exhale the nitrogen or off-gas it. Okay. And it doesn't become a problem in the sense where the bubbles um, get trapped in the bloodstream or they get trapped in joints or press on nerves and things that you you don't want places where you don't want the bubbles to get stuck. So aviation DCS is sort of same sort of idea, except um, you're flying along and your cabin is pressurized and for whatever reason you lose your cabin pressurization. So now so it's like a rapid ascent. A rapid ascent. Okay. So now nitrogen, if you're up in high altitude. Exactly. So now nitrogen, which is physiologically inert, it exerts a big pressure, but it doesn't do anything physiologically okay. for you. It's not, it's not like oxygen or carbon dioxide, which are the, the breathing gases, but it does exert a big pressure and it's dissolved in tissues or it saturates your, your blood. Well, you lose your pressurization and now the nitrogen bubbles out of solution. So it's very similar to taking like a soda can. Shaking the soda can with a pop and then popping the top, and all the gas spews out. So, in a sense, maybe not quite as violent as that, but you begin to have nitrogen off gassing or bubbling out of solution. And now you have nitrogen bubbles in the bloodstream. And as they get transported in the bloodstream, they can get stuck in joints, under the skin, press on nerves. And those are some of the symptoms of, of decompression sickness.
0: So, if they get stuck in a joint, what's the danger in that? Is that it could? Clog the blood from flowing, and so if it's yes. in your neck, let's say the blood doesn't get to your head, or if it's somewhere else, you could have tissue damage. Mm-hmm. Or
1: it's known as the bends, okay. and it, it just causes pain in the joints um, and, and achiness, and it's it it no no kidding, it's just difficult to bend. Essentially, hmm. it's difficult to move that joint.
0: So whether a scuba diver or an aviator who suffers DCS, the response is generally to put them in an altitude chamber.
1: Uh, it's a hyperbaric chamber okay. or excessive pressure they, they, or recompression. They squeeze them or press exactly. them, whatever the expression yeah. is. Thankfully, so I never had the, to do it. It, I, I would call it squeeze. The dive doctors would call it press. It's the same thing. You're putting someone under a greater pressure. And the idea is to get the nitrogen bubbles to collapse Or because of the excess pressures to force the nitrogen back into solution or back into the tissue.
0: Where it can't do any damage. It can't do any
1: damage. And you already have an advantage in aviation because you're at a higher altitude and you descend. So the pressure is going to increase. So in that sense, you have an advantage. But um, if you still have um, DCS symptoms, that's where you would send somebody to a hyperbaric or a recompression chamber.
0: But sometimes... When you're coming down from altitude, you can have other trapped gas issues mm-hmm. like sinus problems, right? Or or other aches and pains. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's going on there? Why, why do some people have difficulty ascending or a lot of times descending, whether it's their sinuses or otherwise?
1: A lot of times what has happened is you already have some congestion. So you're not able to vent the gas like So you the pipes are would. clogged
0: that normally transport equalizing pressure.
1: Exactly. And now yep. when
0: they're clogged, they can't do it as it well. They can't do it as well. So mm-hmm. you end up with a pressure differential. Mm-hmm. And then that causes pain?
1: Exactly. I don't get sinus headaches, but from what people have told me, it's like having an ice pick driven into your forehead. So it can hurt. So one of the biggest things is obviously don't fly with a cold. Make sure that you're completely over it. You can also use things like um, nasal decongestion sprays, afrin, and so forth. We tell folks if you have to snort that stuff before you fly, you should be flying to begin with, But <laughs> you can use that. Have it, you know, in your flight suit pocket, you know, so if you get yourself stuck it's an and you can't clear, it's measure, an emergency. Yeah. Okay, it take some of that, and that should help clear it up, at least enough so that you can get the pressure to clear until you can get safely back down right. to the deck.
0: And then deal with the problems then. Exactly. Now, you can have trap gases also in your gut, right? Oh, yes. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. just a function of venting that out. Exactly. Even in your teeth, I guess, right? Is that because of what, if there's a filling and you have an air pocket in it? Exactly. Yep. Okay. So
1: dental work in, in, in the Navy, we had 24 hours. So if you had major dental work, you have to wait really? 24 hours. You're grounded, at okay. least until that ends. But if you've had dental work, like I've, I have blown out a filling because I had an old filling and need to be fixed. So um, you will notice that on ascent because the gas is expanding on the so, climb. Okay, right,
0: right, yeah, okay, huh? So well, our bodies are full of various fluids oh, and gases, flight <laughs> <laughs> flight is a little bit unnatural. <laughs> I would submit. I guess birds don't struggle with any of this. No, huh? okay, no, well. But it- but, but it's still fun because we adapt very well. We do, and so. we have techniques and equipment and everything else to handle it. Well, mm-hmm. Susan, this has been uh, a really interesting discussion. Thank been you. A what what, did, what yeah. did we not cover? That's important for our listeners to know <sighs> about flying high-performance jet aircraft and the effects on our bodies.
1: That's about all of it. I think we covered covered all the major. I hate to call that. I'd call them challenges, not necessarily altitude threats, but challenges. Okay,
0: yeah. that makes sense. Cool. Well, before we get to my final question, what's what's next for hmm. you? What, what's the future hold?
1: Well, let's see. As I mentioned, I've been in the Navy for a little over 21 years, 17 in naval aviation, and I'm going to retire in oh, a really? few months. Okay. So, I have thoroughly enjoyed my career. I'm going to miss the people, um, but it's just time to move on. So, any the, plans? The goal is to be an aircraft accident. Investigator. Oh, for so NTSB. NTSB okay. would be would be my preference. I cool. think that they I, I think they are a cool agency. Would like to, to work with them and for them, but their um, FAA also has safety investigators major airlines, things of that nature.
0: Okay. Well, you would be so. a good catch for any one of those. Well, uh, thank you. I thank you. I hope you find success there. Now, before sure. I let you go, we have a mm-hmm. tradition here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast yes. for our guests to explain their call signs. Oh, dear. So, Cyclone, <laughs> okay. please enlighten us, if you would. Uh,
1: this is professionally embarrassing. All right. It's not what everybody thinks it is. As I mentioned, I'm a native of Iowa, graduate of the University of Iowa, so go Hawkeyes okay. in Iowa City. There is another state institution of so-called higher learning, about two hours to the west of Iowa City. I
0: think I can see where this is going.
1: In Ames, Iowa. And again, I will not (laughs) name that other institution of so-called higher learning. I am named for their mascot, which is the cyclone.
0: Now, that's just me. Now, who came up with that?
1: The senior members of my community (laughs) a long, long time ago. So, yes, I am named for my college's major rivals mascot.
0: Okay. So it couldn't have been something cool to to bless you. It had to be (laughs) be your main rival across town or across state. Okay. Well, I went to UCLA. So that would be like if my call sign was Trojan. Oh, there you go. Which could be disturbing. Actually, I'm not sure why I just said that, but anyway. (laughs) All right. Well, Cyclone, this is why I usually call you Susan. I didn't even know that, but uh, Susan, thank you for coming on the show today. It's been really fun. Thank you. We learned a lot. Uh, And a moment ago, when you talked about your 21 years of service, I failed to, as I will now say, thank you for your service and everything you've done. Thank you for your support. You're quite welcome. Everything you've done for pilots and your nation. So. On behalf of everyone, we appreciate what you've done and the information that you shared today. So unless you got any parting shots, I think we can wrap this up and get out of here. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. All right. Okay. All right. That was really awesome. I Hope you enjoyed that. I apologize if we got a little technical with some of the anatomical discussions we had there, but hopefully you understood what we were talking about and you have a pretty good appreciation now of just how demanding it is on the human body to fly these aircraft. So our thanks again to Susan Jay and our best wishes for her and her coming retirement. All right. Well, let's see. What else is there? I think that is going to do it for this particular episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. As always, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. If you have a question for the show, send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line, 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website regularly at fighterpilotpodcast.com. We're always changing things up, trying to make it better. And you can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Please, Like, follow, share us with your network, and if you have a moment to leave us a rating and review anywhere where they support such things, we would greatly appreciate it. All right, well, we'll see you back here in about 10 or 11 days where we will talk about Top Gun, both the school and the movie. Until then, take it easy.